According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me in Matthew chapter 19 as we get started. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. I really thought we were going to wrap this up last week, and then I thought that we didn't have enough remaining for a complete session. Uh, but having looked at it again in the meantime, I think uh, I think we do. So we'll see. If nothing else, we can make certain that we are solid on everything that's here and uh, explore some of the side passages and then get ready for our next episode coming up in uh, the next portion here of Matthew 19, verses 13 and following, where uh, they try to bring these children to Christ and... and um, and the disciples try to prevent that from happening. And Jesus uh, has to step in one more time. And I tell you, he had such patience with those knuckleheads. It makes me wonder how... Uh, <laughs> I think that that in itself was testimony to how, in fact, he was sinless and perfect and uh, God in the flesh because nobody else would have put up with Peter and Andrew and James and John and, and all those guys. Or us. That's right. Well, we get them in view here as well in verse 10. Matthew 19:10 where the disciples say, you know, if that's what marriage is like, no thanks. A man would be better off not to get married. So um I think they're wrong, Jesus thinks they're wrong, and this is what we're looking at here in the final uh principles in verses 10 through 12 that uh, wrap up his teaching here on divorce. Before we begin any of this, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure as believer priests we are filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have one more time to assemble together. Father, this is a grace provision, and we just want to acknowledge your glory in allowing for us to assemble today. Father, thanking you for the uh, freedom of our nation, thanking you for the health and transportation and finances to be here. Thankful also, Father, for the grace of uh, Live Oak Bible Church and continuing uh, the uh, allowance for us to make use of their building. Father, we just, again, give you the praise and the glory and thank you for being who you are and uh, especially thankful that you are not us. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, the doctrine on divorce. We've really gone through three main points of study, and we're ready now for main point four, although I printed off a fresh sheet of notes, meaning that I don't have my uh, slides marked out. We'll just take a guess on it here. First of all, this is a trap. As in most conversations with the Pharisees, there are ulterior motives at work. They are not really asking questions to get information. They're asking questions to uh, accomplish some nefarious purpose of theirs. And uh, we see that here. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him, tempting him, and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? They're not humble under the authority of the Word of God. They're not eager for truth. They simply are tempting Him. We've taught before the doctrinal differences between testing and tempting. God will test us for our growth and for our benefit. Satan will tempt us for our downfall, for our snare. And that's what's happening here, the vocabulary that addresses the downfall. 
And uh, they were normally de- uh, designing their questions to trap the Lord. In this instance, I think the trap has another layer. The trap has another level. They're hoping to use the Lord to resolve their in-house debate concerning divorce. This really, this chapter gives us an insight into some of the politics within the Pharisee party itself. They have an in-house debate, and one of the, the great uh, sources of division between the school of Shammai and the school of Hallel was this divorce question. There were others as well. They, they disagreed on a, a variety of other topics also, but this was a hot-button issue. So the school of Shammai taught that a man could only divorce his wife for a sexual offense. They were the more uh, restrictive of the divorce uh, permissions. And then the school of Hillel permitted divorce for almost any reason, uh, as long as a man found favor for or disfavor in his wife for whatever reason. And uh, we don't want to think of them as conservative and liberal. In, in, that's how we normally break things down today. We would be tempted to say, well, Shammai was the conservative school and Hillel was the liberal school. That's not true. It's unfair to Hillel to accuse Hillel of being a liberal school. Um, keep in mind that Hillel was a student of Gamaliel or vice versa. And uh, Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel and Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. They were a very conservative school. Each group had biblical reasons for why they held the position they held. And uh, the, the phrase in Deuteronomy 24.1 is that divorce is permitted because he is found in her indecency in anything. That's the translation. And the school of Shammai chose to highlight the word indecency and chose to camp on that term and and form the basis of their divorce doctrine on that term indecency. And because they locked in on that and what it meant in the Hebrew and and so forth, they limited divorce to sexual offenses. All right. And, And even that, by the way, is a concession to the realities of the fact that under Rome, they were not allowed to put people to death, the adulteress in in uh, law, under Mosaic law, was to be put to death. So, you know, that, that minimizes the number of divorces that you have in, uh, in, in a community is if adultery was punishable by death. Then you don't have uh, people with divorce issues. They have, they're widows, <laughs> and they are free to remarry as being widows uh, because their spouse is no longer, uh, no longer alive. Well, in the Roman era and in the period of the New Testament that we're studying now in Matthew 19, um, adultery was no longer punishable by death and uh, divorce was becoming more and more common. Uh, and so the different schools of rabbinic thought were, were uh, coming up with their opinions regarding this, saying, well, okay, we can't, uh, <laughs> we, we were no longer stoning adulterers, uh, but what now are the procedures that we should be following? And so the school of Shammai focused on the phrase indecency, and they limited divorce to the uh, cases of sexual immorality. The school of Hillel, on the other hand, read the very same verse, the very same verse in Deuteronomy 24.1, but they decided to focus on the prepositional phrase in anything. Okay, If that a man has found indecency in her in anything. And they chose to elaborate on that in anything. And they said, you know what? In anything could be anything. It could be more than a sexual offense. It could be a variety of different kinds of indecencies, not just sexual indecencies. And so they chose to make an application based on the in anything expression. All right. And what I'm trying to stress, I did this last week. I did this the week before. I want you to understand that these were not, this isn't a liberal conservative thing. These are 
people trying to make application based upon what the text says. And they could defend their positions both biblically. All right? Keep that in mind, because we encounter folks like this all the time. They hold the, whole, they hold the positions they hold. And they have Scripture to back them up. All right? Now, I can typically find why their scripture backs them up or what hermeneutic they're using or uh, what their theology is. And if I use the same theology, I'd come into the same conclusion. All right. It's helped me to be more relaxed with certain folks that uh, that we differ on. All right. Now, there's also a third view that's not in that's not featured in Matthew 19, but it is featured in the Jewish traditions. And this was the opinion of Rabbi Akiba. And he selected a different phrase from Deuteronomy. Um, because uh, it says, "If it shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes, which is, the, which is the, the clause right in front of the clause that the other two rabbis focused in on. It shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes. And Rabbi Akiba picked up on that expression. Oh, not finding favor in eyes, then that means it's a visual uh, appearance, attractiveness issue. And so if, if a man finds someone else prettier than she then he has grounds for divorce. Can you imagine? You know, who in the world would hold to such a thing other than, you know, a carnally-minded person who wanted an excuse anyway, (laughs) as far as that goes. So, needless to say, now that one doesn't come up here in Matthew 19, but as we study it now, in Matthew 19, verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him, and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Any reason at all. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Jesus to choose between the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. If he can come down, if he comes down conservatively on the side of Shammai, then that's great for the school of Hillel. <laughs> if he comes down more loosely with the school of Hillel, then that's great for the school of Shammai. Why? Because remember, they hate him. They want him dead. And the whole point to getting him to choose sides here (laughs) is so that the side he doesn't choose can use that as a weapon to beat up the side that he does choose. They're planning on their... their, It's it's a power play. It's like modern politics today. It's a power play. They're positioning themselves for who's going to have the upper hand once they successfully uh, execute the the death warrant on Jesus Christ. So, this is... uh, the uh, the issue here that we're studying. Now, we've done quite a bit of this already, so let me just rapidly run us up to date to where we are. Um, under point two, Jesus used Genesis to demonstrate that divorce is never the directive will of God. According to Genesis, a man leaves his father and mother, they cleave to one another, the two become one flesh. This is the beginning. He takes it back to the beginning. Uh, and here's what he does in verse four. He answered and said, Have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. So take it back to the scripture. Show what the the design is. Say, you know, we're not just making this stuff up. Uh, We we didn't invent marriage. God invented marriage. God created man. God created woman. He designed this relationship. And so he takes them back to Genesis 2.24 to say, you know what? You're both wrong. Divorce is never the ideal. Divorce is never the directive will of God in as originally given. And I'll skip through. We have a bunch of subpoints on this, but we covered that in the last couple of weeks. If you're interested in that, by the way, we post every message on the website so you can get last week's class the week before and, and all the rest. Get caught up on uh, on these materials. Well, now, here's the Pharisees now. 
And they're going to object. They're going to say, wait a minute. <laughs> what, about, what about Deuteronomy? What about Moses? Moses said we could get divorced. In fact, Moses commanded that we issue a certificate of divorce. Do you see this here? Um, they have this, yeah, but. <laughs> in verse 7, yeah, but. You ever encounter those? You're talking to somebody and they go, yeah, but. And they have uh, another piece of their argument they're going to hit you with. Uh, they said to him in verse 7, reading now from Matthew 19, 7, why then did Moses command? That's their mistake. Moses never commanded. Why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, well, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And so Jesus is admitting that in the uh, consequences of the fall, with sin in the world and with all of the ugliness that comes with sin and sin natures and so forth, that divorce was permitted as a permissive will, but it was never commanded. It was never commanded. You can go back to Deuteronomy 24 and read through the whole section there. You don't find a single command for divorce. You just have it described as a permission in, uh, in that application. And Jesus says here, no, it was permitted but not commanded. And that becomes important. We gave this as well. They took Moses' divorce statement as a command. It wasn't a command. Jesus rejected it as a command. He said it was a permission. It was a permitted concession because of hardness of heart. And every time, even when it's for the right reasons, even and there are right reasons. We, we've discussed this. We'll wrap it up again today if we need to. We'll go through 1 Corinthians 7 and we'll say, for example, adultery destroys the marriage bond. It absolutely eradicates the intimacy between the one man and the one woman. And, and, and it is a factor where God permits the divorce. Abandonment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if the unbelieving one departs, he departs. You can't stop that. You can't change what they're going to do. And you're not a victim or a slave or trapped if you've been abandoned by uh, someone defying God's will. Don't kill yourself with guilt if you've been abandoned. Uh, there's other passages, too, in terms of abuse. We typically use three A's, adultery, abandonment, abuse, or a fourth A, addiction. Say, if you're... If you're uh, if you're in danger because the man is a thug and he's violent and, and so forth, are you expected to, to get killed? What are you expected to do? Anyway, these are fairly standard among conservative evangelical understandings of the doctrine of divorce. Now, Jesus rejected Moses' divorce statement as a command. He says Moses never commanded it. Moses never commanded it. And here's the thing. Even if you have valid grounds, it doesn't mean you have to doesn't mean you have to, even though you can. You may have, maybe your, your wife or your husband, whoever, maybe they committed adultery, maybe uh, under permissive will, you would be uh, not sinning for uh, divorcing. However, you may choose to restore that marriage, to forgive, to, to move beyond it. And that is uh, obviously the ideal, because that goes back again to Genesis and the ideal. God's word through Moses never commanded divorce. It never prohibited remarriage after divorce. The medieval Roman church did that. They, uh, they, would, they created kind of an artificial thing where they would permit a, uh, an annulment or they would permit a divorce, but then they, they attached a clause that did not allow remarriage afterwards. See, And that's not biblical, even in the uh, 
the uh, passages we're looking at here today is not biblical. Divorce is an end of a marriage, and a divorced person is a single person capable of marrying anybody on the planet except um, a former spouse, if in fact there was one in the meantime. That's the only prohibition. Reconciliation of a marriage once a remarriage took place to someone else. The only way you can go back to a former marriage is if no intervening marriage took place for you or for that other person. The minute there was a third party, the minute there was a remarriage somewhere else, you never could restore that original divorce. So that's why the command is let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. The only way to be reconciled is if she remains unmarried in the meantime. That becomes an important principle as well. So, as Jesus uh, develops this out, he expands his first statement with a second statement. And his first statement, of course, was don't divorce. From the beginning, it was not this way. But his second statement allows for divorce. And he stipulates fornication as a basis for permitted divorce. Notice what it says here in Matthew 19, verse 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So immorality is a, is a valid permissive will under, uh, concept under which divorce is permitted. And also, by the way, <laughs> there's a close linkage. This often gets missed. There's a close link in verse 9 where, mar- where divorce and marry are linked together in the same expression. All right. So if you divorce in order to marry somebody else, that's adultery. All right. That's adultery. If your whole reason to get divorced is because you're tired of her and you want her, that's adultery. And that's what it says there. Who divorces and marries commits adultery. All right, well, this is all review. Let's move on now. And, and again, I think we have plenty of time because there's not a whole lot left over. The disciples' reaction. The fourth point of study now. The disciples' reaction in verses 10 through 12. The disciples' reaction. And I find it interesting. Uh, we don't get any more of the Pharisees' reaction other than um, when they tried to interject Deuteronomy and he answers them. We don't have a second follow-up and we don't know. We don't expect that they were very happy with what he told them regarding Moses. Uh, but we don't see the Pharisees again in this context. Instead, we have his disciples in verse 10. And uh, although it says the disciples, it's understood to be his disciples, not the Pharisees or the Pharisees' disciples. So his disciples then said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. Like what? What are they saying? Like what Jesus is saying, that from the beginning, no divorce. From the beginning, they were designed to be um, leaving their father and mother, cleaving to one another, the two become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no man separate. He says it's God's will that you don't ever divorce. See, book of Malachi says, I hate divorce. Speaking from the Lord's perspective there. And so now here's the, Pharise- here's the disciples, not the Pharisees, the disciples saying, wait a minute. You mean... We're better off not, uh, you mean no divorce ever? Not even under Moses' permissive will ever? Is that what the ideal is? Well, then we're better off being like you, Jesus. <laughs> okay, because did Jesus get married? No. 
And so they say it would be better. If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. And to me, there is so much in this one verse because it it shows us who these disciples were, the world they grew up in, the mindset they grew up in, where divorce had become so easy and commonplace. The idea of living in a in a uh, culture or in a, in a marriage where it wasn't even an option was unthinkable for them. Isn't that interesting? Because it's not... Now, partly, too, we, we struggle because we try to interject our church age perspective back onto them, okay? And everything we, we relate to in terms of marriage, they didn't relate to that. You understand that? We portray Christ in the church, in our marriage, as man and woman in Christ. We portray Christ. We portray the bride. We show that faithfulness. That's, that wasn't their role in the Old Testament. In any event, I, th- I think it does testify to their culture and where they were. And the idea that, uh, that divorce was not an option was unthinkable in their mind. It is better not to marry. All right, so here's the reaction. First of all, they're wrong. <laughs> Jesus' disciples reacted strongly. They reacted strongly to his tough stance. But you've got to take what they say and compare it to what Scripture says. Because when, when they say it is better not to marry, doesn't that run contrary to it is not good for the man to be alone? Alright, in Genesis 2.18. Just put those up there side by side and say, alright, reconcile them. <laughs> if you can. Alright. It is better not to marry. It is better not to marry. Hmm. I find very human any expression of better. Okay? Normally, now God will occasionally use superlatives. He almost never uses comparatives. But typically, God makes absolute statements rather than even superlative statements. All right? Better. God, anything better is human. You and I, we, we, uh, we operate in a human relativistic sphere. You ever think about that? Everyone is either better or worse, older or younger, taller or shorter. You know, there's always scales of whatever. And if there's a characteristic, then, you know, if you say, oh, well, so-and-so is handsome, well, someone's more handsome. Okay? Someone's... Uh, smart, someone's smarter. There's always a scale. God doesn't deal with that. God deals in absolutes. He makes statements like, it is not good for the man to be alone. Or he creates, says, let there be light. And there was light. And he looks upon creation after day one and he saw that it was good. But this whole idea of better, <laughs> as if we can improve upon good, God creates things good, and we say, oh, it could be better. Which I find interesting. And uh, even, even in terms of salvation, how many people do you know are just trying to be better than other people? As if God grades on a curve, and if you're some of the better people, you get to go to heaven. If you're some of the not-so-good people, sorry, you're going to hell. That's not how it works. It's not about being better or worse. It's about God's standard of righteousness. And you're either righteous in His sight or you're not. 
see, in the, in the gospel message, the plan of salvation. Well, they say it is better. It is better for a man not to marry. And this runs contrary to it is not good for the man to be alone. The point being that Adam was given an assignment and he was designed to be in. Well, let's look at it again. Back to Genesis. All right. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 tell the same story, but from different contexts. All right. Different perspectives. They're not contradictory. They're complementary. We accept them both as the divine record. Now, if you want the, the full detail and explanation, you get that in chapter 2. But even before that, what do you see in chapter 1? Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. This is the, the final, the pinnacle of creation. you got fish and birds and animals and everything else. And then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them, notice immediately there's a plurality in the picture. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Humanity was designed to have stewardship, dominion over the created realm. And here it is, verse 27. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Designed to be a male-female complementary situation. We, st we saw that already under point two. Humanity was biologically designed for a male-female partnership. You know, if more people understood Genesis, we'd have less struggles in our culture today regarding um, environmental insanity or even homosexual insanity or even uh, any of these other things that defy the purpose for why God created them. All right, male and female, he created them. But notice, originally it was just Adam by himself. Where was the female? Okay, he had to observe that he had to recognize and identify that need. And that's the, the detail that we get here out of chapter two. And so uh, Adam's naming all the animals. He's accomplishing his assignments. He's busy working. Uh, but the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper corresponding or suitable for him. Genesis 2:18. And uh, what's interesting here, God knows it. But he waits until Adam recognizes it. So we see in verse 20, the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, every beast of the field. See, when you're given a name, what does that mean? It means you're sovereign. God permitted Adam. God instructed Adam. All right. I mean, I named all four of my children. Why? Because they're my children. <laughs> they didn't pick out their own names. All right. It's the way it works. They've started giving me names lately, which I find amusing. Um, but he gives names to the animals. We don't worship the animals. We don't serve the animals. They serve us. And we don't abuse them. We have to treat... I mean, we understand what godly stewardship is, what our responsibilities are. Because they're not ours. Ultimately, they're God's. We're simply appointed with that responsibility. But here's something else the feminists don't like. Adam names Eve. Okay? He named Eve. He named all the animals. Then he named Eve. And there's, uh, there's a doctrine that goes with that as well. So the, the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And why does God do this? Why does he do this? Why don't he just get some more dirt like he made Adam out of dirt, get a different section of dirt and make woman? 
got to come from man. It's got to come from him. That's right. Because once the rib is removed from him, now he has something missing. He has something missing anyway, but now he has something physically missing. And so she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She belongs to him. You know, that's his rib. Didn't come out of anybody, any other man's rib, right? That's his. And um, this is what marriage is. The woman God gives you is yours. Nobody else's. Yours. She belongs to you. She's a part of you. She's your rib. She's your body. All right. And so the man recognizes this. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. And you notice this. God's sovereignty is not thwarted in any of this. God designated Adam these responsibilities and said, you name them. Okay? Volition doesn't trump sovereignty. See, Calvinists have a hard time with that. They think, oh, if I exercise volition, somehow I'm thwarting God's sovereignty. No. He assigned those responsibilities. And he was fine with every name God gave to every animal and the name he gave to woman. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. All right. So this is good. This is what God designed. This is his ideal for the glory of his own plan, for the exaltation of his own son. All right. Remember, man is designed to image God, to portray God. The dolphins don't do that. The dogs and cats don't do that. The trees don't do that. The animal realm and plant realm communicate his power but it's the human realm that illustrates his divine nature. You've got to understand that. All right? And uh, man and woman together accomplish that work assignment. All right. Well, Jesus uh, rejects their uh, opinions. They say, oh, it's better not to marry. Better not to marry. Why is that? Hmm. Jesus rejects their opinion. He says, it'd be better off if nobody ever got married again. Yeah, that'd be a short duration for the human race then, wouldn't it? No, Jesus rejects the disciples' opinion. Only a select few have been given a celibate way of life. Only a select few. It is not good for the man to remain unmarried. First of all, most men aren't designed for it. Most men, it's the exception, not the rule. Most men are not designed to be alone. Again, it's not good for the man to be alone. And what it says here, not all men can accept this statement, but only those. Now, there's a, there's a figure of speech at work here, and it comes across in English as well. You don't have to go into the, to the Greek to, to dig into this. But if I say that not everyone, something, something, but only, and I, I list a very select group, understand what was being said here. When it says not everyone, what it really means is almost nobody. Okay? Almost nobody. The only ones who can are the group that are being selected right here, right now. Okay? I could tell wild flicking stories from West Germany. And, and uh, not everyone in this room would appreciate any of them. But only those who have a clue what wild flicking even is. Okay? And to my knowledge, that would be Daryl Dar and myself. All right. And unless you've been there and been frozen through the whole experience, you uh, don't understand that it was the model for uh, the Star Wars planet Hoth in uh, Empire Strikes Back. It's just a frozen wasteland of, of horror. Okay? 
And that's the idiom that we have here. So I, I tell these wild flicking stories and not anyone can appreciate it except for Daryl Dar, <laughs> The only man in this room that knows what I'm talking about. Okay. This is popping into my thinking today because an old wild flicking army buddy of mine popped up on Facebook this morning and sent me a note. So I thought, okay, bring back some memories. Now, what we have here in Matthew 19 then, when the disciples are saying, you know what, it's better off if we just don't get married. You know, if we're trapped for life, then, man, we better just not get married in the first place. Who wants that? <laughs> and that right there shows you why they're wrong. Okay? That shows you why they're wrong. Marriage is not a trap. It's a work assignment. It's a blessing. It's what God has designed for you and one other person on this planet to together to walk as heirs together the grace of life in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's not a trap. Well, you know that. Preaching to the choir here this morning. Now, he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, meaning almost nobody can. This statement meaning the idea of celibacy, the unmarried relationship but only those to whom it has been given understand that has been given it's a possession some people mark it off as a spiritual gift okay i don't believe it's a spiritual gift but i do believe it is an assignment that is appointed it's an assignment that is appointed paul had this assignment appointed to him as a circumstance of his apostolic ministry but his gift was apostle uh, there are pastors that teach celibacy as a, as a gift. I just I don't see it as a gift. I see it as a condition that the Father assigns. But it has to be appointed. And if the Father doesn't specifically assign it to you, you don't have it. It's not yours naturally. Not every man can accept this statement. By the way, this is gender specific. This is focusing specifically on the man. And it gets pretty graphic today. Don't want to embarrass anyone, but we're going to have to discuss eunuchs. And uh, things there that are strictly male. All right. Not all men can accept this statement, but only those for whom it has been given. He rejects their opinion. Only a select few have been given a celibate way of life. That's why the Roman church is in such trouble. They're trying to impose a celibate way of life on people that are not designed to be celibate. Unless it has been given. Now, there is a way, and we get this to the end of verse 12, there is a way in which um, men can make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, and that's what they try to apply when they force celibacy upon their priesthood. But we're going to see that that's the wrong venue for what they're trying to do. And it is supposed to be an exception, not a universal rule. Hold your finger here. Let's look over at 1 Corinthians 7 and you should see as well. This is Paul's statement on the matter. Paul expanded on everything Jesus said regarding divorce and singleness. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I've got about 24 hours of teaching on this. Uh, more than that, I've got about, I don't know how many hours of teaching we have on these verses. But in verses 7 through 9, He says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Now, this is with respect to abstinence, to not engaging in sexual activity. Oh, goodness. All right, the whole chapter. then. <laughs> not 7 through 9. How about 1 through 9? All right. 
Concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. This was a letter the Corinthians had sent him saying, hey, we can solve the fornication problem. We just will prohibit all activity. They even went so far as to prohibit it within marriage between husbands and wives. And Paul says, no, no, that's a problem. <laughs> all right. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each husband is to have his own wife and each wife is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. So you want to re-paraphrase verses 1 through 3? Yes. Abstinence is good if you're single. In fact, it's commanded. But abstinence is wrong if you're married. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. And that term is a fraud term. Um, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, there's only a, a rare occasion within a marriage, or maybe not so rare, depends on how long you've been married, but from time to time within marriage, there may be a desire on the part of the husband and the part of the wife to stop and say, you know what? We need to get our, our prayer life back on track. We need to get focused on the Lord. We need to be locked in on spiritual things. So let's take the next whatever, the next period of time. Let's just take it and let's devote ourselves to prayer, to Bible study, to getting right with the Lord. And then once we're back on track here, then we'll resume our normal marital activity. Except by agreement for a time. Of course, agreement is two people both agreeing on the on the idea. So that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Obviously, when there's sexual issues, problems, disagreements within a marriage, then the adversary's got all kinds of uh, ammunition that he can use. He can twist and manipulate and cause uh, resentments and bitterness and all kinds of issues there. So that's the context when Paul then says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and the other in that. So, as God has given it, as God has assigned it. Alright. The reason why uh, that term gift is there is the reason why some people think it's a charisma, a spiritual gift. But to the uh, unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. See, and there's the issue. Most people are not designed for the celibate way of life. That's not the rule. That's not the normal. All right? And so because of that, it's uh, the smarter decision is to find the woman he's designed for you and marry her. So Jesus rejects the disciples' opinion. Only a select few have been given a celibate way of life. Thirdly, there are only three conditions that Jesus gives for deliberate non-marriage. Three conditions of deliberate non-marriage, and he bases them on castration. He calls them eunuchs in all three cases, although I believe the third one is a metaphor. Three conditions of deliberate non-marriage are based upon castration. Why would... Uh, a man not get married. All right. Four. This is verse 12. By way of explanation. There are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. 
There are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who make who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And it's that third group then that that the Roman church focuses in on and other Christian groups focus in on when they create a uh, monastic monk kind of uh, celibate existence. And yet, I believe in most of those cases, they've got the wrong focus in mind when they're talking about the kingdom of heaven. All right? Because the kingdom of heaven is not here on this earth, and it won't be till Christ comes back. All right. So three conditions of deliberate non-marriage. First of all, birth defects. Birth defects of emasculation. By the way, this was a feature of Mosaic Law as well. It's not unique to the New Testament. It was featured in the Old Testament. Leviticus 21.20, Deuteronomy 23.1a. Birth defects of emasculation. You know, we live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. And there are birth defects. And there are disfigurements that take place. And some of them are um, uh, facial. Some of them are dealing with limbs. Some of them are dealing with uh, senses, blindness, deafness, hearing, you know. But some birth defects are, are focused, are deformities of the, the genital regions. And that's what we have here. Leviticus 21, 20, Deuteronomy 23. Uh, in the cases where children are born deformed, it's kind of interesting. I'm reading more and more about 20th century uh, thing. I'm frightened in some of the things I've been reading that in many cases uh, different uh, births where an infant was uh, deformed uh, maybe with uh, uh, incompletely developed male portions and so forth. Doctors have made decisions to remove those and and artificially convince parents and convince you know, was the baby you no know, we were just born but try to launch that baby into the world as a girl can you imagine and, and it's more common than we understand anyway um leviticus now it's interesting in this um Leviticus 21.20. This is, has to do with the priesthood. Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your offspring throughout the generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the, the food of his God. Okay? It's not that they're bad people or they're m- mentally deficient. They're nothing wrong. But they are disqualified from the portrayal they are called to do in their priesthood before Adam. Because remember, I mean, in their priesthood before the Lord... The Aaronic priesthood was designed to bring sacrifices of holiness to a holy God. And the animal had to be without spot and blemish. The priest had to be without spot and blemish. So it's not, we're not discriminating against, uh, you know, the ADA would have a field day with this. We're not discriminating against people with disabilities or people born with whatever. Okay, we're just saying because the role of the priest is to illustrate perfection, then the visible perspective, Per, uh, perfection was the outward sign of that. So, 
um, no one who has a defect shall approach, a blind man or a lame man, or, so, uh, or he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb, or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf, or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs, or, and here we have the crushed testicles, here we have the congenital condition of deformity with respect to the male um, deal there. All right. No man, but see, he's qualified by birth. His dad's a priest. Why can't he become priest? All right. Because of the expectations of what it is they are portraying. Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy 23. Here's another one. And yet, see, what's interesting, what Jesus is saying here is that these folks can't get married. And because they can't get married, they have an opportunity to serve as single people in some amazing ways. And, and it's, it's, it's radical for Jesus and for Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 because in Deuteronomy, they're excluded from serving. But in Corinthians, Paul says, they can serve better than anybody else. They're going to be the best of those that are serving because they're not distracted with marriage life and family life and all the other things. They can be 100%, 24-7, serving the Lord in, in different capacities in the age of grace. So that's, uh, that's quite a contrast there. All right, there's two things that are stated here in Deuteronomy 23.1. No one who is emasculated, I think that's the congenital birth circumstance, or has his male organ cut off, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. All right, and that's... The uh, second category that we get to, slavery castration. Slavery castration. This was often inflicted upon your enemies. This was inflicted upon slaves. This was extremely common in the ancient world. You know, in the census, uh, different census figures for the Roman Empire and so forth. There was a, there were more slaves than there were free citizens in Rome. And it was very common for the slaves to be castrated. In the Oriental world, it was necessary for the slaves to be castrated because um, these were the officials that were assigned to guard your harem, for example, like Xerxes and, and uh, Pharaoh and all the pagan kings. Uh, you've got to protect your harem, and uh, you don't trust the men that you've assigned to guard your harem if they are completely men, and so you castrate them. Render them impotent, where they're not going to be, um, they're not going to be messing with your harem of women. Okay. <laughs> These messages are awkward simply because this is not our culture. This is not our realm. I mean, this is alien in much of our way of thinking. But here's what we have in the second part of verse 23. I think both are in view there. Emasculated or has his male organ cut off. This was a feature of slavery. This was a feature of uh, a defeated foe on the battlefield. I mean, think about it. If you wanted to make sure that a conquered people did not try to um, rise up and, and restore their conquered nation again, or that a son of a slain king might rise up and try to restore a nation again, you just make sure that these kings don't have any more sons. There's no more descendants that can claim a throne that belonged to their father or their grandfather or what have you because <laughs> they're not having any more kids. We've taken care of that. All right. 
It was also a good way if you had a prime minister. The Egyptians were great for this. A grand vizier or prime minister, uh, pretty common in the Muslim world as well, for a, a high-ranking government official to be a eunuch, to be castrated. And that, uh, again, that allowed you to have a very effective administrator or governor or political leader, uh, but you weren't worried about him um, you know, replacing your dynasty because he wasn't going to have a dynasty. All right, he wasn't going to kill you and take your wife and raise his own kids. He wasn't going to have any kids. Okay. And so we see this. In fact, I believe this is what was prophesied in Isaiah 39, and I think is what happened to Daniel in Daniel chapter 1. All right, in Isaiah, that's why it's, it's horrible to lose a war. Um, Isaiah 39, 7. Verse 6 says, The days are coming when all that is in your house and all in your fathers have laid up and stored to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, they will be taken away and they will become eunuchs. Officials, if you want the G-rated term. They will be uh, uh, eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And then we see in Daniel 1, verses 3 and 4, the boys Daniel and Hananiah, Meshach, Abednego, they were taken away to uh, Babylon where they became officials and uh, the circumstances there. All right. Then the third one, kingdom of heaven, self-castration, kingdom of heaven, self-castration. They make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I believe this is a metaphoric use. This is like in the Gospels where it says, pluck your eye out and cast it from you if it's causing you to sin or if your hand causes you to stumble, chop it off. And it's, it's designed to be a metaphoric use. Okay? We don't literally pluck out our eyes or chop off our hands or self-castrate. But it does say there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, who forsake all future marriage, marriage life all future sexual life, all future, because they are focused entirely upon their mission, their ministry, their work on behalf of the kingdom of heaven. Paul was one of those examples. Paul, uh, and we believe he was married at one time, but either widowed or divorced when he got saved, and that, um, that he served his entire apostolic career unmarried. And yet he had the right to get married. Again, we go back to 1 Corinthians 7 and we see this. But the key, to me, I think, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, and most Christian monastic orders are not properly oriented dispensationally to the kingdom of heaven. They have substituted the church for the kingdom of heaven. They have substituted their, their, uh, their uh, religion for the kingdom of heaven. kingdom of heaven is not here yet. It won't be here till Christ returns. And... Um, I think we need to be properly oriented to the kingdom of heaven before anyone can make a proper decision regarding celibacy. In most cases, I think according to 1 Timothy 5, it's actually older widows and widowers that decide that uh, they're going to live out their widowed years uh, single rather than remarrying. And, and they, uh, they make that decision later in life rather than younger in life. Paul even warns the younger woman, if you're, if you're widowed too young, then get remarried again. Have your children. And things there. All right. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26, verse 32. It says, um, I think that it is good in view of the present distress 
that it is good for a man to remain as he is. In other words, during the intensified stage of the angelic conflict, when, there, when difficult days have come, when there's maximum uh, conflict, maximum affliction, if a nation's going through a time of, of uh, war, adversity, or economic depression, and so forth, it may be a smart idea to not uh, to remain focused on the kingdom of heaven and not be bound. As it says here, uh, do not seek a wife. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek a release. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But he got, does go on to say, if you marry, you've not sinned. All right, you're not wrong. And even Paul says that he can, he has freedom to get married. That he and um, Barnabas, if they so choose, have every right to take along a believing wife. Every right to do that. And then verse uh, 32, likewise. I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. Notice that's not sinful. That's not wrong. It's just normal. It's the way it is. It's the way it is. All right. Ultimately, I believe Revelation 14.4 is the fulfillment of of what Jesus was speaking of when he said, uh, making themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists in the Great Tribulation, every one of them is going to be celibate. As we read, uh, the 144,000 who, uh, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And so ultimately, I think what Christ was speaking of there has, was designed to be not the normal for the church age. Paul says it's not normal, but it was designed to be looking ahead to what the 144,000 are going to fulfill in the, uh, in the tribulation of Israel. All right. Well, we'll come back next week. Then. Any questions? Anything on... Uh, today was kind of just a, a wrap-up because the main thing was divorce from last week and the week before, but we have the, the last things there. Uh, Scholar, you had a question? Um, yeah, I can hear you. Or we can run a microphone back there. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Yeah, the New Testament does not stipulate that it has to be one-sided. In the Old Testament, by the way, it was only the man who could issue the certificate of divorce. The woman was stuck until, I guess, until she made it so miserable for the guy. He <laughs> he, he wrote her whatever she wanted, you know. Um, but no, in the Old Testament, only the man could issue the certificate of divorce. In the New Testament, it's given both directions in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The husband is not to divorce his wife and the woman is not to divorce her husband. And it is described both directions in, uh, in the church age. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it's Matthew 19.9. Also, Matthew 5 
is uh, the other text where Jesus gives the adultery exemption uh, where fornication is a uh, permitted context for uh, permissive will divorce. That's Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 both. All right. Anything else? Okay. Yeah, I think it's it is um, the normal is to get married, but I think the context here is the present distress in verse 26 is the recognition that if uh, if Christianity is coming under persecution, if uh, as it is in so many places now around the world uh, where um, we're better off for safety reasons, for other reasons, uh, there may be. and in the Great Tribulation, by the way, when when hell is unleashed and Antichrist is reigning and so forth, um, it may be better. I think uh, in terms of uh, some of the missionary works uh, where some people are going into very dangerous places. Uh, I've had talks with Titus Kennedy, for example, and he's doing archaeology and evangelism. He's traveling the world and doing different things. And he's told me, and he's a young guy, he's a, he's a handsome guy. But he's told me, he says, he doesn't think that the Lord would ever assign him a marriage responsibility because he couldn't imagine uh, in the career field God has provided for him, he couldn't imagine taking a wife into some of the dangerous places that he goes to. So I think that the answer to that is the context of verse 26 that describes the present distress, the uh, conflict of of the intensified stage, the angelic conflict. Otherwise, the normal is to get married. And he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And we love weddings. I've got three of them scheduled between now and the end of the year. And we'd like to, like to do more. I'm, fi- I'm going to finally get caught up on my wedding and funeral ratio there. So uh, that's a blessing too. All right. Thank you, Father. We thank you today for your truth and for the study of your word. And, Father, we do ask for humility, a humbleness as we study. And there are some things that are just hard to understand because... Our culture is so different than the culture we're studying. Uh, other things are hard to study because just the, sometimes the subject matter makes us uncomfortable to talk about certain things. But, Father, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And everything you put in your Word is designed for our teaching, for our exhortation, for our encouragement. And so we thank you for it. Father, I pray that we would have the proper understanding of how to uh, glorify you in our personal lives, in our marriage lives, in our family lives, in our church life, Father that we might uh, always be focused on how we can bring the maximum glory to our Savior, your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.